want you to turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. And we do want to look at the story of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem today. Matthew chapter 21. I know this is a familiar story. And I pray that in the same way that the crowds along the road as Jesus entered into Jerusalem threw down their coats and threw down the palm branches, I pray that as we move forward recognizing what Jesus has done, we'll lift up our hands, lift up our hearts, and lift up our praise and glorify Him, give Him our lives. You know, Romans chapter 12, it says to present your bodies, your lives, Therefore, as a living sacrifice unto God. And it says that that's holy and acceptable. In modern translations, it says that it's in your reasonable service. It said that that's our spiritual worship. Far more, and man, I love worship. The truth is, I, there's not much that I love a whole lot more. I love good teaching and I love worship. I could sit all day in the midst of good teaching and good worship. But far more than our songs that we sing and our mechanics that we go through, whatever the mechanics are. And I don't say that disrespectfully. The Bible gives all kinds of ways to worship in the physical realm. It talks about dancing. It talks about shouting. It talks about clapping our hands and lifting up our hands and falling on our face before God, kneeling before God, falling silent before God, singing before God, worshiping God with the instruments, musical instruments. So many things are listed as ways mechanics through which we can worship God and it's all wonderful but much greater worship you can do all of that and miss it much greater worship is giving your life every day submitted to whatever God says bowing your knee every day presenting your body a living sacrifice that is the worship that God is really looking for that's worshiping God in spirit and in reality, in truth. And when God, when God finds worshipers that will worship Him with their lives, then it adds a whole new dimension to our songs. And the wonderful thing about it is, Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria that when God finds people like He's looking for, and those people are the people who worship Him not just in spirit, but in reality, in practical truth with their lives, He says that God becomes someone who lives and indwells and inhabits that worship and that praise. And I want to tell you today that there is absolutely nothing that you're facing today that the presence of God in all of His glory cannot radically change. What we need today is the presence of the Almighty God, tangible as a reality in our day-to-day -day life. And you can have that. And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. A couple of things I want to note before we get to the meat of what we want to talk about today. And I touched on it earlier when Jesus came into Jerusalem on that first Sunday that we celebrate as Palm Sunday, we're going to read about it in a moment. There was great fanfare. 
The crowds have been following him. And when the Bible says multitudes were following him, we've got to get out of our mind the movies that we've seen on TV. Multitudes meant thousands. There weren't just a couple, 20, 30, 50 people gathered around in groups where Jesus was. There were thousands of people. Do you remember one time when Jesus said he had to move through, he supernaturally moved through and pressed through the great prayer? Do you remember when people couldn't get through the crowd and, and so some guys with a lame friend had to climb up on the roof to lower it because there were so many people gathered around the door and in the house that they couldn't get in? Whenever Jesus went, there were such great crowds. There were thousands of people that would gather. Now, here's the reason. It's because Jesus did miracles. And it's because Jesus taught as one who had authority. And they never heard anybody teach like that before with life and with authority. And Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. Jesus said as much. He turned to some of the crowds one day and he said, I know why you're really here. You're here because I gave you, we mentioned this last week, you're here because I gave you a free lunch and you're hoping I'll do it again. The Bible says Jesus knew the hearts of the, many of those who would gather around him. Many people gathered as a curiosity. Because they hadn't seen someone open the eyes of someone born blind before. They hadn't seen someone cause someone who had been deaf all their life to hear or the mute to speak or the crippled to walk or especially the dead to be raised. And Jesus did all of those things. Rumor had it that he had walked on water and stilled the seas. They, they knew that he had cast devils out of those who had been possessed. And, and not to mention the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. And so there were great crowds that gathered around Jesus. But unfortunately many of them were just curiosity seekers. They were either looking to see if it was really true what they had been told. Many of them thought that he was a political figure. Surely this was someone who would rise up to be the long-awaited Messiah, and he was. But their idea of the Messiah was someone who would immediately remove the political shackles of Rome because they were dominated by the Roman Empire and they wanted to have their autonomy and their freedom as a nation again. So many people were watching to see if just maybe this Jesus would rise up and become a great political leader and lead a great movement of zealots who would overthrow finally the domination and the heavy taxation of Rome. Some people were there just simply because they wanted something from him. Loaves and fishes or healings. And then once they got what they wanted, they were on their way. But some people became disciples. They saw and heard something in Jesus that touched a deep thread down in their heart. But the point is, Jesus came into Jerusalem knowing on Sunday what Friday would be. See, he always knew the hearts of people. So he knew that the crowds that were chanting on Palm Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would turn their opinion by Friday. He knew that some of the very ones who looked at him with adoration and would love to have forcibly made him king on Sunday would chant crucify him on Friday. And the amazing thing to me is that he came anyway. The amazing thing to me is, is that he went through all of it anyway. And there's no question that he knew because in preparation he tells his disciples exactly what's about to happen to him. He says, look, in just a few days, the Son of Man is going to be raised up and lifted up. He's going to be crucified. Jesus knew. You remember? Because Peter even stood up and said, no, far be it from you. Because Peter even expected a political uprising. He said, no, we can't let... And he loved the Lord, but he said, I'll fight. We won't let that happen. And Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You, 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 because he didn't realize what spirit he was speaking of. That's what Jesus had come for. Jesus came knowing full well he was going to suffer, but suffering was okay because the suffering he went through was going to be followed by a resurrection, and because of his resurrection, he was going to be able to free and liberate and forgive every one of us.
Now, I make a point of all of that to say that's not unusual because when Paul was about to become the apostle, when Saul was about to become the apostle Paul, the Bible makes no ifs, ands, or buts about the fact that God showed him everything he was about to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, that's not popular to preach anymore, but it is very common through Scripture. God took him aside and prophetically showed him. Notice that Jesus is speaking prophetically about the fact they're going to go into town. He's sending two disciples, what they're going to find, where they're going to find it, how quick they're going to find it, what they're going to say, and what's going to happen after they say it. Jesus knew every step of the way here what was about to take place. And God knows what's going to happen in your future and God never paints a rosier picture than what it should be because you see in God's eyes what we are living for is not for the temporary of the here and now in God's eyes what we are living for is for the eternity of the future that we will have with him and it's good enough for us just simply to bow our knee and serve him in the here and now whatever the cost So Paul was shown all the things that he would suffer. Jeremiah and Isaiah were told at the moment they began their public ministry that nobody was going to listen to them. We said this last week. Nobody was going to care about what they said. People were going to absolutely rebel against them. So in human eyes, God said, you're going to be an absolute failure. But in my eyes... I just want you to go preach. I just want you to teach. And Jeremiah had such a Jeremiah got the 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 title of the weeping prophet. Because he stayed so heartbroken all the time over the rejection of the message of God by his people, knowing that they would wind up going into captivity because God told them that they would if they didn't change. And so Jeremiah wept, cried over his people and yet his people continued to reject the word. It came to a point in Jeremiah's life where He actually despaired. He just kind of wished that, you know, God, do I have to keep preaching this? Do I have to keep saying it over and over again? If they're going to keep rebelling against what you're telling me to say, can't I just be quiet or say something else? But he said, but it's like this message in me is like a fire shut up in my bones. And he had to go out and he had to declare it. And I say all that to say this, in your life, in my life, in our future, Are you willing to go wherever God sends you? Are you willing to do whatever God tells you to do? Are you willing to say whatever God tells you to say? Or do you have parameters that you put on God? Well, God, I'll go as long as you work this out. God, I'll do it as long as this turns out the way I want it to. God, I'll follow you as long as you take care of my finances, as long as you take care of my family, and as long as you take care of this, as long as you take care of that. Do you notice in Scripture there are none of those parameters? People, the disciples, they loved him so much that they were willing, especially after the resurrection and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, they were willing. Actually, they counted it an honor to die for him. Paul, towards the end of his life, set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. And then he set his face resolutely that he was going to go to Rome. And in both cases, he was discouraged by legitimate prophets who already knew, if you go, if you do what you're wanting to do, your hands are going to be bound up and we're never going to see you again. And because of their love for him and their sorrow over losing him, they begged him. And the, the prophet had heard the word of the Lord. He just didn't have the motivation of the Lord. He didn't realize that God had actually called Paul to go. In his eyes, Agabus was the prophet. In his eyes, he was legit. But in his eyes, he thought God would never want you to go through that. He wouldn't want it all. This could not be God's plan. And Paul 
Told him, hey guys, you're wearying me with this. You're, you're tearing me up by your emotion. I have to go. And I'm willing to die. And that's the question that I start with today. How willing are you to give up everything that you hold on to so dearly if it means obeying the word of the Lord? How important is the word of the Lord to us? God had already set in stone the Father had what Jesus would do and the price that it would take. So Jesus was resolute that he was going to go to Jerusalem no matter the cost. He knew the cost. I want you to see verse 2, a little sidelight again before we get into the meat of things. He tells these two disciples to go. He said, go into this city and then you will find. One of the reasons I think that, I, I, to, to me, I can't imagine what a thrill it would be to have a word from the Lord saying hey go into the city and when you get there immediately I mean as soon as you walk into the city look this is what you're going to find and then you tell somebody this and they're going to let you have it now we don't think much about it today because it's just a donkey but realize they didn't have cars tractors any of that kind of stuff and they were agricultural was their means of making a living so imagine, and you can use whatever illustration you like, but imagine that somebody said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into a city, and the first place you go, immediately you're going to find a car. It's going to be sitting there, and the keys are going to be in it. And he said, if anybody says, why are you taking it, just tell them the Lord needs it. It's the same scenario. It's exactly the same scenario in our day, if you modernize it. So you kind of get the idea of the miracle that's happening. See, we read it as a donkey. We don't think of it as a miracle, but in the, it is a miracle. Not only that he knew they'd find it immediately, not only that he knew ahead of time that the man was going to let him have it. Now imagine you're the guy who owns the donkey. Actually, it's two of them. One, one gospel doesn't list the two. They only talk about the one he rides on. It's two. Imagine you're the owner. What if you need it at the end, later on in the day? Doesn't say anything about the owner knowing who Jesus even was. He might have, but we don't know that. You're left to guess. All we know is Jesus said, tell him the master needs it. <laughs> what are you going to do? Hey, we need your car. Matter of fact, we need both of them. We need your older one and your newer one. Master needs it. When are you going to bring it back? I don't know. He just said he needs it. He says he's going to let you have it. I don't know about you, but if I was one of those two disciples, while I'm walking towards the town, I am figuring out why I'm what I'm going to say to Jesus when they tell me you can't have the car. Or else I'm trying to figure out how to get out of doing what I have to go do because I know they're not going to let me have it. Now, maybe they've been around Jesus enough to halfway expect that this might work out. But can you imagine how you'd feel on the inside when not only you got into town and sure enough, immediately, there they are. And when you get there and you just start untying, because here's the way the picture goes. He just said, go take them. And if somebody says something to you, otherwise he's saying, if nobody says anything to you, just take them on. I don't have time to get into the ethics of all that, but I'm just saying, that's what he said. But the owner happened to be there, and apparently they said, uh, Jesus needs it. And he said, sure, 
Can you imagine how you'd feel? Wow. But here's the thing. They wouldn't have seen the miracle had they not gone first. And here's our problem. We want to see the miracle before we go. See, we don't want the uncomfortable situation of what might happen. That's why we don't pray for people who are sick, because we always say, well, what if they don't get better? That's why oftentimes we, we don't step out in obedience to God because we have all these what ifs. Well, what if it don't work out? And what if this? And what if that? But you see, you're never going to see a miracle until you first go, until you first step out, until you first obey. Say, go into the village and then you will find. A lot of you may be sitting here today, and I know I have many times where I'm sitting here, God, I haven't found. Why am I not finding? And I think a lot of times God would say, because I told you a long time ago to go and you're still sitting. So you're not going to find until you first go. you got to step out. The priest had to put their foot in the water of the Jordan before the Jordan parted for Joshua when they went into the promised land. Peter wanted to get out and walk on the waves, so Jesus said, come. I imagine he might have had some second thoughts. I don't know if he ever thought Jesus would say come or not, but I can imagine what his mind was going through when Jesus actually said, come on then. But before he could walk on water, he had to first step out of the boat. Miracles don't happen until we first go. So whatever God's told you to do, don't sit around and wait until everything looks perfect. That requires no faith. Anybody can do something that requires nothing. Uh, God often asks us to do things that do not look legitimate. I'm not talking about being irresponsible. You need to know that you can hear the voice of God, and you need to know that you've heard the voice of God. But once you know the voice of God, and once you've heard the voice of God, you often have to step out in faith before you see the miracle. And none of that has anything to do with what I want to talk about today. I just want to touch on those things before we got going. So if anyone says anything to you, just tell them the Lord has need of them. That's the third thing. If the Lord really needs something that you've got, are you willing to let him have it? No matter what it costs. What if God shows up today and speaks to you and says, I need your time. I know you treasure your time, but I want you to give some of your time away. Some of us would be happier with that than if he showed up and said, I need some of your money. Not that he needs it, because God don't need anything, but what if he calls you to give some of it? Your service. If God calls for it, are you willing to give it up? The Bible in verse 4 says, All this was done just simply that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. It, all, of, all of this was done just to fulfill Scripture. doesn't even say it was done to make the disciples feel good. It was all done just to fulfill scripture, just to be a part of the plan and the purpose of God. I want to say something that to me is becoming more important every day that I live in this generation. Are you willing just to be a part of the program and the plan of God, even, no matter what your part is? See, everybody's willing to be the star. Everybody's willing to have the worldwide ministry. Everybody's willing to stand on the stage. Everybody's willing to get the accolades. Everybody's willing to, to have the praise. But are you just willing to play a part? See, here's the thing about this guy who gave what the Lord wanted. We don't even know his name. Do you know his name? There might be some scholar somewhere who thinks that they know the name, but to my knowledge, nobody can really narrow down and say it was this person. 
but yet he played an integral part in the story. And he sacrificed for, for the story. He obeyed God. Did you know what God said about what real success is? He said, it is required in a steward that one be found not successful, not great, not accomplished, faithful. The only thing, the only thing God is looking for is will you be faithful? Because you see, anything else that's going to happen that's going to be good, it's going to be because of Him anyway. If you and I accomplish anything for the kingdom of God, it's not because you and I were talented. It's not because we were smart. It's not because we were gifted. Because every good gift and perfect gift comes down from God to begin with. So if it's going to accomplish anything in the kingdom, it has to be God. All God wants is somebody who will say yes. Whatever the cost, whatever the price, yes. Lord, you said go, I'll go. Lord, you said speak, I'll speak. God, you said move, I'll move. It's required in a steward that one be found faithful. Verse 5 says, It was done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and setting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's the thing. A lot of times when God actually does show up, He does not show up in the way you were expecting. Because you see, they wanted a political king, a political messiah. They desperately wanted somebody to overthrow Rome. They were hoping Jesus was the one because he was doing miracles and he was doing great things and teaching this radical teaching. So they were hoping he was the one. But you see, conquering kings did not come in riding on donkeys. Conquering kings came in riding on white steeds. Guess what? Jesus is coming back, you know. Do you know what the Bible says he's riding on when he returns? A white steed. But when he came into Jerusalem, he didn't look like what they were looking for. And he didn't come to do what they expected. They had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for their Messiah. Jesus was their Messiah. But he came to do it in a different... He did come to liberate them. He did come to set them free. But he came to set their hearts free. Because he knew this. And boy, it would be great if we'd figure this out. That you can have freedom in every other area of your life. You can have all the money you ever dreamed to know what to do with. You can have your family can be great. Your marriage can be great. Your church can be great. Your job can be great. Everything can be great. But if you're bound up in your heart, you're going to be miserable. But if you're free in your heart, you could actually be in prison. And there have been many testimonies of that. People who are in prison because of the gospel or people who got saved in prison who are in prison behind bars where you and I are out walking free and yet they are far more free than many of us are because they're free in the heart. Because Jesus set them free. And that's the kingdom that Jesus came. When he returns, he is going to establish a physical kingdom on this earth. He will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And the Bible says we as his people will rule and reign with him. You want to know what my future is? That's my future. I don't know exactly when, but I do know the what. That's what's coming. But the first time, he was not what they expected. Many of us are crying out for revival. Many of us are crying out for a move of God. Many of us are crying out for deliverance. Many of us are crying out for the presence of God. Here's the thing. A lot of times he shows up in ways that we are not expecting. 
Many times we have this preconceived idea of what it's going to look like and sound like and feel like when God shows up. And usually that preconceived idea is something we've seen before. But how many of you know that God has variety? And he is not required to do things exactly the way he did it last time. Matter of fact, I just want to tell you the truth. I found out a little bit about God through the years. He quite often does things exactly the opposite of the way he did it last time just to kind of let you know that you can't count on everything. being. He does it just so that you won't get stuck in the old ways. But the main thing is not how he shows up. The main thing is that he shows up. Because whether they realized it or not, their king had come into town that day. Whether they accepted him as such or not, their king had rode into town that day. So the disciples in verse 6 went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their clothes on him. And they set him on them. And very a very great multitude, that means thousands of people, spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. And then the multitudes who were before and those who followed cried out, saying. Basically it became a large parade, for lack of a better term. Everybody followed Jesus and went before and behind him as he came in to Jerusalem. And as he did, they're putting these palm branches and, and their, their clothes on the their, their cloaks on the on the ground in front of him, just like they would a king entering. And they're crying out the whole time, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now the thing is, that's a prophetic psalm that David had written, and it was written for the Messiah. So whether they realized it or not, they really did. Many of them in that place were singing a song declaring and ascribing to Christ the role of Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all of the city was moved saying, who is this? And I want to take just a moment to stop and point out that there is a difference between being moved and being changed. And here's the problem with many of us, particularly as charismatics, full gospel, Pentecostal, non-denominational, word of faith, whatever you want to call us. We're satisfied with just being moved. We see somebody get moved and we get all excited. Woo, boy, wasn't that a move of God? And it probably was. But that does not mean that anybody was changed. See, we, we get excited because we see... And I, I do too. I'd rather see somebody shout and run than sit dead band like... I don't know why I'm here. Kind of halfway wish I wouldn't, but I'm here. But at the same time, it is a mistake. A huge mistake. To see somebody physically demonstrating something and think, Woo! Boy, they got it. They might. And they might not have any more than they had before they walked in. Matter of fact, they might have less because they might think that because they had an emotional move, they actually got something. Do you know how you know when you got something? Oh, you're going to love me. When you change. When you walk out of this room and husbands, you love your wives more than you did when you came in. And wives, you love your husbands more than you did when you came in. Even if they didn't change a thing. Even if they're still just as mean as they were. When, I mean, and I say that facetiously. Even if they annoy you as bad when they go out as when you came in, you love them more. 
If somebody that you could not forgive after you had your experience at the altar, all of a sudden you know that even though you don't feel like it, you have to forgive them. And you begin the process of praying the prayer of God, I choose to forgive so-and-so. I forgive them. I lay all my offenses down because it does not glorify you for me to hold a grudge and bitterness. So I lay it down because you laid everything down for me. I choose to. And I'll do that 153 times a day if I have to until I actually feel it. Then you know you changed. If that sin that you excused the last time the Holy Spirit or somebody said, Hey... This isn't right. You need to let this go. But you've been fighting it, justifying it, defending it, and excusing it. When all of a sudden, because you've been in the presence of the Lord, you just don't have any heart to excuse it anymore. Matter of fact, you'd just rather be free. And you fall on your face before God and you say, Oh God, make me free. That's when you know you've had a real change. The whole city was moved. But I want you to get that. And that was glorious. It was wonderful. If I would have been there, if you would have been there, it would have been like a great church service. And we all would have celebrated. And we should celebrate. And we should feel good. Here's the problem. Most of this same crowd was crying crucify him on Friday. Less than a week later. Well, I'd never do that. Never, 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 never would I ever do that. Bless the Lord. I got more faith than that on Sunday. Oh, praise God. You are my everything. Hallelujah. I stand in faith. Bless God. I declare that I'm redeemed, blessed, precious, and possessed by the Spirit of the Almighty God. I have all things that I need. On Tuesday, you have a flat tire. Dear God, you never answer any of my prayers. I don't know where you are. I just want, might as well give up and quit. Forget it for goodness sakes. Everybody else is doing good. Nobody else ever has a flat. Everybody else's washing machine always works. I don't know why it's always a washing machine with me, but everybody else's stuff always works. Everybody else is happy. Everybody else is blessed nobody else ever gets sick and here I am sick for the 15th time this year for goodness sakes God I don't know if this thing works or not oh yeah see we would have fit in just right and I, I put myself in that crowd too do you see a move of God doesn't mean you're changed but a move of God can change you If you'll lay your life down. If you fall so in love with Jesus when he moves on your life that there is nothing worth more than him and you're willing to lay down everything else but him. All of the city was moved when Jesus came into town. So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They were half right. It was Jesus. He was from Nazareth. He'd come out of Nazareth in Galilee. He was a prophet, but he was so much more. Then Jesus went into the temple of God, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. I, I think it's amazing that on uh, Palm Sunday, we all, most of the pictures we think of is the crowd with the palms, and it's all so wonderful and sweet and, and, and great and glorious. And, and that's right, that's part of Palm Sunday. But he did something else on Palm Sunday that wasn't quite as sweet. He went into his father's house and he took and he made a whip for himself. And he went into the temple where, by the way, the, they had allowed people to come in and sell animals. See, you, in order to get in the temple, you had to make sacrifices. and That was the only way for you to have a relationship 
basically with God that worked is that your sins would be covered through the sacrifices that you made. And, and when you bought whatever animal, many of these people would come on long pilgrimages to get to Jerusalem so that they could sacrifice. And so when you would buy the animal in, in the temple, they didn't just sell the animal at cost. They put a tax on it. They added to the price and they pocketed that excess. And many times the poorest of the poor couldn't even afford the sacrifice to get into the temple to basically get into the presence of God. So many times the poorest of the people were left out. Sometimes they just didn't want to sell to those who they didn't like anyway. And so Jesus came in and he fixed a whip. He made, I want you to get this picture of Jesus. I love all the pictures of Jesus, but I love this picture too. He fixed a whip and he went into the temple and he found everybody in the temple that was holding other people out of his father's presence. And he turned their tables over and he physically drove them out of the temple. Meek and mild Jesus, our lowly Savior. And he is meek, mild, and lowly, but he was also very strong. And he drove them out of the temple. And then look at what he says. He says, it's written... In my Father's house, it'll be called a house of prayer, a house of communion, a house of intercession, a house where you can come and meet with your Heavenly Father. But you have made it a den of thieves. Two things I want to point out. The people had come into the presence of God to make a profit for themselves. Listen to what I said again. The people came into the house of the Lord for their own profit. That's what the money changers were doing. Jesus drove them out. And he drove them out because they were holding other people back. The other thing he says is you've made this a den of thieves. You know what by definition it is to steal, to be a thief? It means to take something unlawfully. To take something that isn't yours. And so what he said, you've come into my father's house, which is supposed to be a house of communion, supposed to be a house of intimate relationship with the Father and you've been taking something instead of coming to commune coming to give of yourself coming to lay everything you are down you're coming to take take, 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 take woo charismatics take, 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 take me, 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 me what I can get, what I want what's in it for me I'm coming I believe oh, every time we pray God send revival, we want you to show up in the house. Be careful what you pray. He might just do it. Because here's the thing. It was after he drove them out that the poor and the lame and the broken and the hurting could come in. And the minute they came in, Jesus healed them. And he set them free. How long had they been waiting on the outside? What was holding them back from coming? Do you know if you went into the community, and I know it's a sorry excuse, but it's still truth. Do you know what the biggest holdback is for people coming to the house of God? Christians. <laughs> it's you and me. I, oh, I guarantee you. You ask people, it's, it's proof, statistically true. Why aren't you coming to church? Why won't you come to church? Because I know people who come to church. They're hypocrites. They say one thing and do one thing on Sunday morning, but I see them on Monday and Tuesday. They ain't nothing like that at all. They're some of the meanest people you'd ever want to meet. Ask your waitress at Cracker Barrel today what they think about Christians on Sundays. You don't have to ask. I already know. 
We, are, they, we have a reputation, not we particularly abundant life. I hope we don't. But Christians have a reputation for being the worst tippers and the hardest people to get along with for service staff everywhere. They hate Sundays because we come and we hog the booths for hours so that they can't get anybody else to come in and then we leave, if any tip, a sorry tip. Not only do we not leave a, the amount we're supposed to live, half time, we don't even leave 10%, much more 15 And then we complain about every little thing. Now, I, you may say, I'm not like that. Thank God for you. I'm just telling you, statistically, it is a fact. When you ask waiters and waitresses, who do they hate to see come into their restaurants the most? Unfortunately, it's churches. Because of the way we act. Because of the way we treat. Well, that's just one thing. Oh, no. There's been study upon study done. What's keeping people out of church is the church. Everybody in America knows everything that we're against. They hear us say it all the time, loud and clear and with great volume. Problem is, they don't know anything that we're for. It's a fact. They know everything we're against. They know nothing that we're for. They know what we hate, and many of the times, they think it's them. Oh, not me, Brother Lynn, because I tell them, I know I hate the sin, but I tell them, I hate your sin, but I love you, sinner. Mm -hmm. I love what I saw a Christian comedian say the other day. He was referencing that. He says, we say that we... Love the sinner, hate the sin. He said, I don't have time to hate your sin. You hate your own sin. I'm too busy hating mine. Think about it. See, here's what we as Christians do. We strain at a gnat and we swallow a camel. We're, that, what I mean by that is we're, we are real quick to excuse our sins, the things that we do. Well, after all, we're justified. And besides, it's not as bad as what they do. But did you know that whatever your sin is, we're talking about Palm Sunday. Next week we're going to talk about the cross and an empty tomb. Understand something. Whatever you think about your sin, if that sin was the only sin that was ever committed on planet Earth, Jesus would have still died for that sin, and that sin would have been enough to put him on the tree. And if your sin was enough to put Jesus on the tree, I doubt that God looks at it as small. Now, I'm not justifying sin. But what I'm saying is many times we are holding people out because we are coming to take for ourselves <laughs> and people who are hurting don't even feel welcome in our presence. People who are broken many times will not come into a church because they think we portray ourselves as having it all together. But see, they don't know that you cry yourself to sleep at night because you don't tell anybody because, for goodness sakes, we don't want anybody in the church to know that we don't have it all because even we think everybody else in the church has it all together. Let me promise you something. We don't. And what I do have together, it's only because of Jesus. <laughs> Every bit of it. Now, the more I trust Him, the more I can get together. But it'll always be because of Jesus. It will never have anything whatsoever to do with me. When Jesus shows up, He may do things you don't expect. 
But I'll tell you one thing. If there's anything standing between somebody who's broken and hurting and the Father, he'll move it out of the way. I hope that doesn't have to be us. He drove them out of the temple when he came. That was Palm Sunday. And then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priest and scribes... And, and by the way, let me just hit this because I'm about to close. I'm almost done. We see this verse, and here's the way we see it through westernized eyes. We weren't Jews. We didn't live in that time period, so we don't realize how it looked to them. See, the blind and the lame, oh, I would never be like that. If the blind and the lame, they would be the first ones I'd want to come in because all we think about is physical, blind, physical. We want them helped. But you see, what we don't realize is that to an Old Testament Jew, because they were still Old Testament Jews at that time, the blind and the lame were unclean. See, they couldn't come among the general population. And if they came to you and you touched them, you became ceremonially unclean. Which, you know what that would mean? That would mean you couldn't worship either. So you see, if you got too close to them, not only could they not get in to worship because that was the law, you couldn't worship either. You would be, quote unquote, contaminated. And so, see, we don't think of it that way because we're that far removed from their culture. But you see, when Jesus showed up and this actually happened, that's the way everybody he was talking to saw it. That's why they didn't want the blind and the lame in because they might just contaminate them. And listen, they might not be able to go out and do life as usual. And they don't want anything to interrupt their life as usual because religion was their life. So now let's bring it home. We all want revival, but you see, here's what happens. If somebody come in here, comes in here today and they're a drug addict, and they've been a drug addict for a long time. But they're broken and they need help. Do you realize that in order to help them, it's going to inconvenience you a lot, not a little, a lot. Life as usual is going to change. Do you, what if somebody comes in our church? What if, what if somebody comes in, four or five come in, and they don't look? like you and they don't smell like you and they don't sound like you and, and you, you start thinking and a matter of fact I'm telling you the truth there are churches that literally used to bus they started busing kids in from the inner city kids who had never been in church before and their church was growing and they said we the, 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 the church got together and said we don't want this anymore we're starting to get a reputation as the church who brings in the hoodlums and the other people are the, the good people the tithers they're afraid to come here anymore because they're afraid of these hoodlums that were busing in from the inner city and, and listen we're going to have to do something different let's go Go take some tents, but let's do something out to help some church in the inner city. But we can't have them come here because if we have them come here, it'll ruin our reputation. People won't feel safe even putting their purses on the chairs anymore and leaving them there when we have people like that coming in our building. Now, I'm just, all I'm doing right now is getting real. Because let me tell you something. There is a reality to that. Way far more of a reality than any of us want to admit. Jesus had to come into town with a whip and drive all of that out 
of his father's house and say my father's house is a place of communion and I am not setting up these parameters the law had them but in my house everybody who's broken everybody who's hurting everybody who's hungry everybody who's thirsty everybody who doesn't know where they fit they are welcome in my father's house and when he finally got all the other stuff out of the way then the broken and the hurting and the lame could come in and then he could heal them all That was Palm Sunday. And can I tell you something? Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's still Jesus. He don't want any of us standing in the way of the people who are hurting if they'll just try to reach out to him. Let's close with this. When the chief priests and the scribes, verse 15, saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. They were angry. So here, here's the picture. The religious leaders, those who should have known, those who should have recognized him the most, when they saw the children, particularly the children, crying out praise to him. Instead of joining in, they got angry. That's what indignant means. They were mad. You can envision their face getting red. They're angry. So they come to Jesus and they said, do you hear what they're saying? See, if the people didn't recognize what they're saying, these chief priests did. See, they knew they were basically ascribing to him a psalm and, and some praise and some wording that was meant for the Messiah. So do you hear what they're saying? Do you recognize what they're saying to you? And Jesus says to them, yes, I love that. As a matter of fact, yeah, mm-hmm, I know. Have you never heard? Have you ever read the scriptures? Now, see, we read through little things like that. We don't think anything about it. Imagine if you were a chief priest and a ruler of the Jews. Your whole life was about studying scripture. Imagine if this itinerant preacher from out in the backwoods from Nazareth, which is the saying was, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Imagine if he turns to you and says, oh, I know what they're saying. Do you understand the scriptures? Do you understand why they wanted to put him on a cross? They hated him. Because, see, he exposed the hypocrisy. He said, you're studying the Scriptures, but you're not letting the Scriptures study you. Oh, let me say that again. You're reading the Scripture, but you're not letting the Scripture read you. You're gaining position by the Scripture that you know, but you're not allowing the Scripture to transform who you are. You're missing the boat. He says, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength or perfected praise? And then he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. That was Palm Sunday. It was an awesome day. Jesus turned the religious world of Jerusalem upside down. Jesus had a tendency of doing that. Can I tell you something? And I, I, I hope we do. I hope all of us want Jesus to move in our lives. But let me tell you how it generally works. When he shows up, he turns your world upside down. He takes all the things that you've been trusting in that really isn't him, even the quote-unquote religious things, and he starts exposing it and laying it bare. And where there's pride, he exposes it. And where there's fear, 
He exposes it. And where there's doubt, He exposes it. And it's not comfortable. And it's not easy. But it's worth it. Because if I really want to be free, I first have to realize what the problem is. You can't help anybody who doesn't realize they need help. You've heard the old phrase, sometimes you just got let let somebody hit the wall. Because, see, unfortunately, sometimes in our human pride, we have to literally run our head into a brick wall and experience the pain of that before we, and fall on our face before we finally realize, whoa, I was going the wrong direction that whole time. And when we do that, all of a sudden we see all of the little reminders that the Holy Spirit had been putting in front of us. We, we remember all of the voices that we had heard warning us that, hey, something might not be quite right. We remember all of the moments that we were in the presence of God, that the Holy Spirit was trying so hard to reach us, but we just kept persisting in our own way because we thought we knew what we were doing and we thought we were in control and we thought we had it all together and this is what we've always known. This is, must, must be the way it is and I don't know any other way and we've kept going and we've kept going until finally in the mercy of God and I said what I meant to say we fall flat on our face and then finally for the first time we're humbled enough to listen and God not in any anger might be saying to you hey how's that working for you I've been trying to get you to turn for months, years now. How's this path you've chosen? How's it working? And once we're finally at a point where we realize it's not, we can finally find freedom. And we can look up and say, Hey, Lord, you were right. I was wrong. Please pick me up. Do you know what repentance is? It's change. It's turning 180 degrees around and going in opposite direction. You know when the Bible says confess your sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us. Do you know what that means? It's more than just saying, God, I have done this and naming it. That's a part of it. But what confess means is to come into agreement with God. That's what it means. It means I'm finally at a place in my life, even though I might be on my back now. Where I agree with you, God. You are right. And I have been wrong. God, will you pick me up? Now, here's the good news as I close. The Apostle James said this. If you will humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, He will lift you up every single time. Wouldn't it be great if we would humble ourselves and not have to be humbled? See, you're either going to humble yourself or you're going to be humbled. One of those two things is going to happen. But you don't have to be humbled. According to James, you can humble yourself. I can humble myself. And the good news is, every time I humble myself in the sight of God, He's faithful to pick me up. I want you to bow your heads with me today. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank You for time in Your Word, time in Your presence. I